Well, good morning. Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we, we remember again before you that we are indeed here with you, um, that you are the one who brought us here this morning, and miraculously, you are the one who speaks to us in your word, even as these words were written thousands of years ago, yet your word is living and active, and your spirit speaks to us the very things that we need to hear. And so we ask for that this morning, uh, that as we reflect on these words together, uh, that you would shape us, that you would renew us, that you would make us more and more the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you are new with us this morning, we are um, working through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. You might notice in the front of the bulletin, the title of this series we're calling is The Gospel Makes a Difference. And it's really kind of, in the last few weeks, I'm hoping that you're beginning to, if you've been with us, I'm hoping you're beginning to kind of pick up on a theme. So at the beginning of the letter, you might remember when Paul is first speaking to the Thessalonians, he's filled with enthusiasm. This young church that he had to leave very early in its life, he comes back and says, we see the work of God in you and we are thrilled. The Spirit clearly called you. There is a change in your life. There is faith. There is hope. There is love. And then, hopefully, we're starting to notice that there is a theme that is being developed, beginning kind of at a turning point in the prayer at the end of chapter 3. So, you might remember in the prayer, what does Paul do after celebrating the work of God? He prays that their love would abound and increase so that they may be blameless in holiness. And then last week, as, as we heard um, in the beginning of chapter 4, where he says, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, we pray that you do so more and more. And then perhaps you notice this morning a very similar theme, where it talks about how you've been taught by God to love one another, verse 10, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. If there is one thing that we are meant to be hearing from this repetition, it's that God's work of sanctification needs to go deep. Paul has been saying, you are being changed. The, the Spirit is at work in you. You're being taught to love as you're being, uh, placing your faith in the gospel, and we want that to go deep. We want there to be a deep work of sanctification, of making you holy as the community of God. Now, what do we think of when we think of the idea of, of kind of, of, of a deep relationship with God? If, if one of your friends or neighbors were to speak of how, oh, we know this person, they're a, they're a deep person of faith, they're deeply spiritual or deeply religious, what, what do you think they would mean by that? And, and my experience, it oftentimes speaks of things that we associate with, with religious, that if someone's spoken of as, as deeply religious, they attend church regularly, or they seem to be a person of prayer, or they, they speak of a, of a confidence in the reality of God. Certainly, as I've thought about it, if you think about, if you've ever watched TV shows or movies where someone is being depicted as someone who is like a deep person of faith, that seems to be what they look like. They're, they're always at church or they're talking about their faith in God. 
What seems notably absent to me in those depictions of, of deep faith is, is any connection to how that changes their way of relating to, to sex or to finances. I mean, have you noticed that, that sometimes you'll have people who, who speak of their faith in God, and yet when it comes to sexual fidelity, they're no different from anyone else. There's this sense that it only can go to such, to so far in terms of actually how it changes people. And those two areas, how we relate to our sexual desires and finances, these, these are not small things, right? I mean, wars have been fought over money. Families are destroyed over how sexual desires are expressed. These are significant parts of who we are, and, and they are significant in that they go deeply personal. I mean, if you are at a party where you're just getting to know people for the first time and someone wants to throw out like an icebreaker, there's certain topics that you know that you can just kind of like ask, like, hey, what was a favorite movie that you had? Or if you were an animal, which one would you be? You know, what you probably wouldn't do to kind of warm people up is tell us a little bit about the choices you've made sexually. Tell us about exactly how much money you earn each week and how much of it you like to give to others. We don't talk about those things, not because they're unimportant, but because they are so personal, so important to us. And so I think it's significant if we think about it that when someone of a deep faith or deep spirituality is being depicted, it never goes to those places. It's, it's as if in our day, in our culture, faith and spirituality is supposed to stay in its own lane. That, that the depth of transformation only is supposed to go so far and no further. And what we're meant to understand as we come to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is that God has a very different way of seeing things. That we are not wholly changed, that we are not whole, that we're not the community that God calls us to be until every aspect of ourselves is transformed by the gospel. God doesn't want to just change our thought life. He doesn't want to just change our prayer life. He wants to change our sex life. He wants to change the way we relate to our finances. He wants to change everything. The sanctification, that making us holy so that we look more and more like God is supposed to go deep. And that's what we saw last week when... Uh, when Nick was helping us to look at the first part of chapter 4, what did we see? He was rightly speaking about how in our culture, if you take it to kind of the logical extreme of what we are saying about sexuality, there's this sense that really what is right is whatever matches and meets our desires. To put it crassly, we are supposed to basically use sex with others to fulfill our own pleasure. And, and taken to its logical extreme, it is degrading. When we think of, of the way pornography works, or we think of the Me Too movement, we see of how humanity is lessened. We see how, how people, how, how communities can be torn apart by this. And God says, I have a different vision for you. I, I want something beautiful for you. I, I want this gift that I have given to take place within a lifelong covenant of self-giving love. That is what binds people together, what binds the community together. That's the transformation that I want to bring about in your life. 
This week, we kind of see the second part of chapter 4, where Paul moves from talking about what God wants to do to make us holy when it comes to sex, to what God wants to do to make us holy when it comes to, to how we relate to each other, specifically even in a financial way. And what we are meant to see, I think, in the verses that we've been looking at is that there are, there are two ways that you might think of of how we can relate to the Christian community. There is a way of partnering, and there's a way of consumerism. So to explain what I mean, let's, let's take a look. If you don't have your bulletins open to, or your Bibles open, I invite you to have them open because we'll be looking kind of throughout at these different verses. And, and we can see what Paul wants to talk about right from the outset, where he says in verse 9 of our first passage, now concerning brotherly love. And that word brotherly love here, um, the word in Greek is actually, it's a very specific word, Philadelphia, not, of course, talking about the city. It's, it's, it's brotherly love or, or family love might be another way of putting it. And, and when people are hearing that word in that day, they have a very specific idea in mind. If we think of kind of family love or brotherly love, we might think of like a pat on the back and, and a lot of affection towards each other. When people in that day were thinking of this family love idea, they were thinking of something that went deeper. They were thinking of, of sharing, and they were thinking of responsibility. Because if you were a family to each other, you, you shared pretty much everything. You would have a family business. Everyone would be involved, whether that's farming or whether that's blacksmithing or whatever. That is what you are sharing together. You would share a home. Oftentimes, multiple generations would be in the same home. You would share meals as people come together, and you would share responsibility for each other. If there's someone in your family who's hurt, if there's someone who ends up being sold into slavery, you buy them back. There is this sense of mutual sharing and mutual responsibility. That was... What everyone saw, this isn't just a Christian thing in that day, anyone would recognize that that is the way you're supposed to relate to family. That's what this Philadelphia is. But what makes things different when the gospel comes is not this sense of an obligation of family, but this awareness of who family is. When, when Paul was preaching the gospel to the Thessalonians, they came to suddenly realize that all of those who believed in Jesus with them suddenly became their brothers and sisters, which was a remarkable thing. People who were in totally different economic classes, slave and free, people in totally different ethnicities, Jews and Gentiles, suddenly they're your family. And so they would know what that would mean. If these are brothers and sisters, that means now I have a responsibility for them. And so suddenly groups of people were began sharing their homes, sharing their meals with each other, making sure they were providing for those in need. Suddenly family expanded to this new community, and Paul thinks it is such a clear work of God. If you notice, when he says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another I see God at work in you as you are living in this new way, this family love. I celebrate. It is a work of the Spirit. In fact, it's so extraordinary that, look, verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. In other words, they're not just treating each other, their church in Thessalonica as family where they're caring for each other and sharing. They know that there's a church in Philippi 
And that city is not as wealthy, so they share it with them. There's a church in Berea. That city is not as wealthy, so we share it with them. There is this sharing going on because they sense that they're brothers and sisters with a responsibility for each other, and that is a beautiful work of God. But notice it doesn't stop there. After he says, you're doing this to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Keep going. There, there needs to even be more of this. And, and what commentators say, and, and the context I think makes this clear over time, is that, that not everyone within the church community of Thessalonica are, are equally sharing this vision of Philadelphia, of, of family love. That there are some who are relating to the community in a different way. That's hinted at in our first passage, and we'll see in a moment when some of the instructions seem to be directed towards that, but it's made explicit in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians that we also are looking at today that were written a few months later. So if you, if you notice, from verse 11 of that second passage, Paul specifically names that. He says, we hear, and presumably he's hearing from Timothy. Timothy was the one who came with the letter and then is coming back with a report to Paul. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. And what Paul is talking about here is, is he's not talking about people who are like weak, elderly children who aren't able, aren't able to work. That's very much a different category for Paul. Paul is very clear that when people aren't able to provide for themselves, the community is meant to provide for them. Now, he's talking about a group of people who are able, who could work, but are not. People who are enjoying the benefits of the family life. They are eating at people's tables. They are, whenever in need, benefiting from other people sharing, but they themselves are not contributing. They don't see it important for them to do work, to be able to earn a living. Instead, they're just having fun with this new church family that they're experiencing. And as they are looking at this community as the place that serves them, it's also manifesting itself in somewhat awkward ways where when the community is not doing things just right, they start criticizing. If they see a family that they don't like the way they're doing, they start critiquing. They are getting involved in other people's business, and they're being busybodies, and it's disruptive. And so what Paul is laying out here is that really there are two different ways that we have of relating to the church community. You can relate to the church community as a partner in that Philadelphia love, or you can relate to a church community as a consumer, where you're seeking in some ways to use them. The, the, the partnership way views the community as a we. We belong to each other. I am your family, and I belong to you, and you belong to me. And that means, if we view it in that way, that we have a responsibility to contribute. We, we think of how we can use our time, our energy, our resources to serve the community and improve it. And if the community faces a problem, that's, that's our problem. We have a responsibility to each other together. That's the partnership Philadelphia way that Paul is speaking of. The alternative is this consumer way, 
where it's not a we, it's a me and them. The church kind of stands outside of me as an organization that more exists for me. And I look at it as a way of benefiting me. And so the question I ask is, how can this community meet my needs? And when the community is failing, rather than it being our responsibility, that's on them. And my job is just to critique and help them to understand how to do better. Two different ways of viewing community. One is the partnership way, and one is the consumer way. And Paul is absolutely clear that when we get a sense of what God is doing in us, there is only one way of truly relating to the family of God, and that, of course, is partnership. So we see this in the instructions that he gives. We first see this in that first passage. After he talks about, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to, to show this love, he, he clarifies in verse 11. He says, to aspire to live quietly. To be clear, the living quietly here, we sometimes maybe hear this and think it's kind of like calling for this monastic kind of quietness where we're not very loud, but that word quietly in that context is much more the idea of being undisruptive, unburdensome, and, and the next two phrases make that clear. Aspire to live quietly in an undisruptive way, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. And the emphasis in the last part, it's not kind of blue-collar versus white-collar. There was no white-collar work. Everyone worked with their hands. The emphasis there is work with your hands. Rely on your labor rather than just sponging off of someone else. In fact, that is explicitly what he says. He says, I want you to aspire to live in this way, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and so that you are dependent on no one. That is what it looks like to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, Paul says. And in case people don't hear what he's saying, and it seems clear to the fact that he has to write about this again in the second letter, that they aren't hearing, Paul becomes even more specific when he writes them again a few months later. So, what does he say? He says, verse 7, he talks about their own example. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul is talking about how even as he was seeking to speak the gospel to them as he was preaching in the synagogues, as he was meeting with them one-on-one, -on -one, he still had to set aside time almost every day to be able to do some work on the side so that they could pay their way through it and not ask for help from anyone. Now, this isn't what was required. He says, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help. Paul is clear that, that missionaries regularly would get support, and that was appropriate. No, but he says there's a reason for this. We we worked in this way in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Paul could see that there were some people who had a wrong view of how this community should work, and so he wanted to set an example of how to do it. An example where there was no self-interest that was guiding what Paul was doing, but he was just giving of himself. He was working to provide for himself and to give to the community, and he was saying, that's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a family 
partnership, mutual contribution. And he says, even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And then in verse 11 and 12, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and to earn the food that they eat. Now just to be clear for a moment, Paul again is not saying, he's not calling people to this kind of strident independence and self-sufficiency. To read it in that way would be to be reading it with a very modern Western mindset. Again, this is a community that has already said we're sharing everything. We're responsible for each other. There was a, in our day, would be a very countercultural way of mutual interdependence that is the baseline for what Paul is talking about. And Paul is very clear that there's going to be occasions that each of us need each other's help. In Galatians, he says, carry one another's burdens. And by that, he's saying each of us will have times where we need others to help carry us. Paul is not saying you need to be always independent. No, he's talking about the way we should see the relationship that we are meant to have with our church community. He's saying rather than viewing this in a way where you just see this community to meet your needs. You should be thoughtful. How can I use my time and my energy so that I'm not a burden to others if I can help it, and even more so that I can contribute to this family love? That, that he says, is what is holy and pleasing to God. That is the example I set for you, and that's what you are called to. And it's important for us to notice that this is actually a really big deal to Paul, reflecting I think that it's a really big deal to God. It probably doesn't surprise us what we thought about last week. If you've grown up or know much about Christian teaching, you know that, that what we do with our bodies sexually matters to God. But it's important for us to actually notice how much this, this way of relating to the community with our finances and our sense of contribution and partnership, this really matters to God as well. I mean, did you notice the instructions that Paul gives for those who haven't yet changed or repented? Verse 6, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. And then if we miss it, he says it again in verse 14. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying if, if people continue to maintain a posture of consumerism where they are only using the community rather than experiencing a responsible love for the community then you need to give some tough love. You need to set some boundaries. Now, to be clear, when he's talking about do not associate with them, he's not saying completely pull away from them relationally. That's clear from the very next verse where he says, we want you to warn them and don't treat them as an enemy. There continues to be a relationship because you continue to love them. But there's also boundaries that need to be set. They, they no longer 
are, are supposed to be able to enjoy the benefits of table fellowship, of eating meals together, of benefiting from the sharing that everyone else did, because as long as they're like that, they're not going to recognize the wrong of what they're doing. This is, this is a big deal for at least a couple of reasons. One of them is clearly guided by this passion that Paul has to see the community be the community that God is calling them to be. So verse 13, when he says, As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. That makes all the sense of the world if you think about it. If you've ever been in a community where there's kind of different levels of expectations, where some people are really committed and really invested, but others are just doing very little, you know what can happen, that there can be a resentment that is established. And you can imagine if you've got this community in the Thessalonian church where there's some who are just giving, having people over, sharing what they have, and they see those other people who just take but don't give, how they would be tempted to say, is this worth it? How they'd be tempted to grow tired of doing good. And Paul's saying, don't, don't grow tired. Here's what you need to do. You need to set some boundaries so that you can protect the community, so that people will continue to view each other in this way. You need to set some boundaries for those who aren't. And there's a second reason that Paul gives these instructions, and it's not just out of love for the community, but out of love for the individual. When he says, do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. That word ashamed has this idea of one turning in on oneself or even against oneself. You know how when you're in arguments, in the moment, the only thing that you can think about in an argument is how to defend yourself against another, but then sometimes when you step away and you start thinking about it, you start realizing, oh man, I was totally in the wrong there. That's, that's the kind of thing that he's talking about here. He's saying, you need to kind of keep them a little bit more distant so that they can have some space to see themselves more clearly because it's really important for them to have the Spirit teaching them about who they're supposed to be so that they can change. Because this matters to God. This is, if you think about it, a very similar thing to what we were talking about last week. If last week the point is rather than using other people to satisfy ourselves, we instead are supposed to be in a covenant of life-giving love where we are giving ourselves when it comes to sex. So also God is saying, rather than using the community, you are called in this bond of family love as you've been entered into through baptism, as you are sharing a covenant with each other, to give of yourself because this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he calls every member of his community to relate to each other in the same way. To say to each other, I am not here to be served, but to serve and to give myself and worship to God towards you. And if we just stop and think about it for a moment, we, we realize this is deep. This isn't just a small thing. God is not just interested in us being nice. He's not just interested in us having kind of more spirituality, whatever that means. God wants to change us at our very core. 
in such a way that it actually changes the way we think of ourselves as individuals and recognize that we belong to each other and that we are meant to serve each other and give ourselves in love for each other. That, that is the beautiful community that God is seeking to create among us. And as I thought about, okay, so what does this mean for us? Now that we kind of understand what's going on and what Paul is trying to instruct people, you know, one of the thoughts that occurred to me is actually what Paul says in that opening passage is actually really fits with us. When, when he says, concerning this kind of brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught to God, but taught by God to love one another. And as I think about this church's story, I feel like that describes this church. I know some of you have only been here for a few months or even less. Some of you have been here for a very long time. But it strikes me that when I think about the story of our church and how 13 years ago, suddenly this very young church, barely past being a church plant, suddenly was without any kind of pastoral leadership. And in that moment when it was struggling with that, what was the decision that the church had to come to? That we're not about being served. We're about supporting each other. This is a family and we're going to work on this together. And ever since, to me, my own experience here has been that is a hallmark of who we are. We, we carry each other's burdens. When, when we see someone in our community who's struggling, our desire and our feeling of responsibility is how do we help that person? When, when we see a need, what do I need to do to fill it? That is, whether it's something that you've been here for a decade or something you've been, uh, you've been here for just a few months, my hope is that you recognize that's part of who we are as a culture. And in the same way that this speaks of how you have no need, for you yourselves have been taught by God, then he goes on to say, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. I think of the way that this church not only seeks to care for each other, but the way that we are financially generous to the communities around us. I think of like the way we seek to support living hope. You know, it's interesting as I've thought about this, how there's this strange this strange kind of line that's been drawn in the American church where we tend to value more serving others with our labor than serving others with the fruit of our labor. Let me see if I can explain. I, I've, I've, I've talked before with people who are incredibly busy with their work. I mean, we're talking sometimes 60-hour work weeks, and that's just the job that they have. And they, they feel guilty because they feel like they are not serving God in the way that they should. Even though in this work, what are they doing? They are supporting their family, and they're also supporting this church community with the fruit of their labor. Yet somehow, that doesn't seem spiritually pleasing to God. And in the same way, I think sometimes we can feel like Sure, it's, it's good if we're able to financially give, but until we're actually able to kind of give of our time and volunteer, well, that's not really that big of a deal, is it? And I understand some of the reason that we kind of feel uncertain about that, because workaholism and, and work idolatry is something we want to avoid, and, and we do know that there sometimes are ways where we can just throw money at something and choose not to care. But I hope you see here, I mean, this is chapter 4, Paul is specifically addressing ways to please God. He's explicitly talking about what holiness, deep transformation looks like. And what does he talk about? He talks about us working 
and with the fruit of our work, supporting others, and how that is worship and pleasing to God. Do we realize that when combined with generosity, we worship God by us earning a paycheck? That's clearly what we are seeing here. And so, we, I think, should celebrate the way God has been at work in this community as he is molding us to have this sense of mutual responsibility for not only ourselves, but even for the churches around us. And yet, following Paul's example, it seems also appropriate to say, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And I say that because this is the reality that we find ourselves in. We face an incredible amount of pressure to revert to a consumeristic way of viewing the church community. In, in this modern advertising age, from your infancy, every ad in its own way has been communicating to you the same thing. Your needs and your desires are what matter most, and every decision you make should be based on what most fulfills your needs. Isn't that the theme of every ad, every algorithm that's involved with searching? It's all saying it's about you satisfying you, and that's how you should make your choices. And that has formed our culture deeply. And it has formed the way our culture views church. If you think about the last 50 years, one of the real changes when it comes to the way people relate to church can be summarized in a simple word, church shopping. I understand that sometimes it's, it's a very innocent way of just saying, hey, we're in a place where right now we've moved, we're looking for church. But think about just that term, church shopping. Do you hear how consumeristic even that terminology is? And, and how often are churches seeking to say, hey, we are going to offer you this. We want to make sure that we provide you an inspirational speaker and, and moving music and programs for the whole family we are seeking to meet your needs, and we sometimes will decide that's how we're supposed to relate to a church. How do we find a church where we can give them our attendance, they can give them what they're promising, and a great transaction takes place? And here's the thing. There is nothing beautiful in the kingdom of God about a transaction that's commercial in its own right. That consumerism is not the way we are meant to relate we are meant to be a family of mutual responsibility, of self-giving love that shows the world what Jesus looks like. And so if there's one, one application question that I think all of us could ask, it is just simply this. In what way have I perhaps unintentionally absorbed a consumeristic way of viewing this community? where I think of this community in terms of what it does for me. And I have a greater tendency to be critical of it because of how it affects me, rather than saying, this is my community. This is my family. What can I do with my life, with my energy, with my resources to serve this community? And if there's a problem, what can I do to help this community? Because that is the relationship with this community that we are being called to. I said how in, as we get in this middle section of Thessalonians, 
God just keeps on saying it needs to go deeper, it needs to go deeper. But that is not where Thessalonians ends. Near the very end, when Paul pronounces a blessing on his community, he continues to have this theme of ever-deepening work, but it, 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 it sounds a different note, where Paul says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. There it is again. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Again, this entirety at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God invites us to hear his word and to let him do his work within us. And he promises that he will keep on working on us until we are made into those beautiful people and that beautiful community that he calls us to be. So in that confidence, I invite you just to take a moment with me and to pray. Um, where we see our own tendencies to be opposed to what God calls us to, let's spend some time in confession, all the while knowing that we have a forgiving God who is committed to continue to do that work in us. Would, you, would we please pray in silence and then lead us in prayer in a couple of minutes' time. <laughs>